Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is partitioned off into two segments in this year's Come Follow Me. This time we're covering Hebrews 1 through 6. Next time we will talk about Hebrews 7 to the end of the letter or the epistle to the Hebrews. But because Hebrews 7 is so pivotal in the argument that the author is making, Bryce and I are going to talk about Hebrews 7 today. We feel that it is valuable. Now, when it comes to authorship, if you go to the very beginning, it says the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. Now, the epistles that Paul wrote go from longest to shortest. So right after the book of Acts, we read the first epistle to the Romans. Now, it wasn't the first one chronologically, but it's the longest, and then the letters get smaller and smaller, and then you come to the epistle to the Hebrews, and it's a lot longer. And that's because for many years, people have debated whether or not Paul wrote this document. We really don't know. Now, it does say in the title that it's written by Paul, but that's not found in any of the early Greek or Latin manuscripts. We don't have this anywhere. All we have is to the Hebrews in the earliest manuscripts that we have. Uh, in the church, we don't really have an official stance on who wrote Hebrews. Many general authorities and apostles have used the phrase the author of the Hebrews instead of Paul when they refer to this in their discourses. There really are many, many possible authors of this document ranging from Barnabas or Clement of Rome to James or John, Luke or Mark or Matthew or even Peter. Uh, many even think that possibly Apollos wrote Hebrews. One scholar even suggested that an early convert uh, from the Jewish faith, her name was Priscilla, uh, the wife of Aquila, we read about them in Acts, perhaps she wrote it. But there's some scholars that contend against Priscilla being the author of this uh, because the text lends itself to a male author. But at the end of the day, we don't know. If you want to get into the weeds, we are going to put some of those in the show notes. I think that's uh, probably the best place to have that conversation because it's just unsettled. An early Christian, his name was Origen, he wrote this. As to who the author of this epistle was, God only knows the truth. And I think that's probably where Bryce and I are going to come out. We're just going to come out and call this the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, for the, for the sake of this podcast and for next week, you'll probably hear us many times refer to the author as Paul. I think that's just because tradition has kind of settled on this idea that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. And if he did, I'm totally okay. Now, regardless of who wrote it, by 90 AD, not even, we're not even in the second century, there were early Christians that were quoting this. And so it is a first century Christian document. And it's written to individuals who are coming out of Judaism and into Christianity, and they're really struggling. One of their struggles is, do I go back to my Jewish faith? Do I trust in the 613 laws of Torah and living the law, or do I trust or have faith in Jesus? And that temptation to go back I think is something that everyone faces at some point when they're a convert, and at times they may have doubts and be thinking, 
did I make the right decision? Is this really what I need to be doing? And because of that, the author of Hebrews is going to be making the argument that Jesus is the right answer. Jesus is the way, and his way is better. I also believe that the timing of this document is probably before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, because the author of the epistle to the Hebrews never mentions the destruction of the temple. And because of this, the author is using the images of the temple to teach about who Jesus is. And if the temple had been destroyed and the author was going to use these arguments, I believe that the author would have referred to the fact that the temple was destroyed, which really caused a lot of Jews in 70 AD to have great questions or perhaps even doubts, wondering, is God with us? And I think that had this document been written before 70 AD, that would have been in there, but it isn't. And so we're pushing this way back to the time of the epistles of Paul. Remember, Paul started writing Galatians right around 50 of the common era, or 50 AD. And so perhaps the epistle to the Hebrews is really that early, but for sure by 90, uh, we know that it has been written because it's been disseminated and uh, Christian authors are quoting it. And this document is highlighting things like the knowledge of the holy priesthood, Christ's status as a high priest and the messenger of our profession or our proclamation that he is who he says he is, that God swore an oath that his son would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We find hints towards the oath and covenant of the priesthood in here, and we also find great statements as to who Jesus is way back in the pre-earth life. It starts right in the beginning of chapter 1. We'll, we'll talk about this in chapter 1, where the author harkens back into the pre-earth ages, eons past, as to who Jesus is. So it ties us into who Jesus is and also shows us that Jesus is going to take us into the rest of God, which rest, according to the Doctrine and Covenants, is the fullness of his glory. And in the seventh chapter, which is really next week, but Bryce and I are going to talk about it in this podcast, it discusses Melchizedek. Now, in the first Israelite temple, from when the temple was constructed during the monarchy around 1000 BC to its destruction in 586, roughly that four or 500 year time period, the Israelites, we believe, at the fall festival would have an experience where they would watch the king and queen enthroned. And the king and queen would represent God to the people, but also the king and queen would represent the people to God. They were kind of like this nexus of covenantal power. And in this process of this fall festival, which was a seven or eight day period, the king would be ordained a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the king would be anointed and he would be called a son meaning the Son of God. The king would represent the Son to the people. He would sit on the right hand of God, and when he was anointed and crowned and enthroned and he would sit down, it would be as if he was sitting on the right hand of God. And Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is channeling these ideas of the king, who was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And remember, Melchizedek are those two words, Melchizedek, Melech is king, Zedek is righteous. So the king is to be a righteous king, a Melchizedek, to the people. 
And I believe that the author of Hebrews understands all of this imagery that was lost during the second temple period. During that time period, the theology changed. Instead of us coming into God's presence, it was only the high priest who could go in to the Holy of Holies once a year. And it became a a focus on blood sacrifices and nobody could go in there. Well, if we read the Book of Mormon, if we do some of the deep digging in the Psalms, we read that the invitation was that we all could come into God's presence. And the king and queen represented Adam and Eve to us. And he, the king and his wife could go into God's presence and be anointed as a king and queen. And the invitation would be this, that we all could do this. And in King Benjamin's speech in the Book of Mormon, I believe that this is going on, that this was the fall festival, what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, and King Benjamin is teaching that doctrine, the doctrine of coming into God's presence, and that bit in there where he says, uh, this day you have been spiritually begotten, you have become sons and daughters of God, or sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, because of this covenant you have made, Uh, they have a name change, they receive the name of Christ, that extension of that promise to come into God's presence wasn't just for the king and queen. It was for everybody. And Hebrews 7 is pivotal in this argument because we are Melchizedek. We are invited to be kings and queens of righteousness. So I really think that's why Hebrews 7 is so important that we talk about that in this week's Come Follow Me. So with that as a brief overview of authorship, time period, context, uh, temple, Let's talk about some of the details in these chapters. If you go to the Bible Dictionary under Pauline Epistles, this is what it says for the letter to the Hebrews. This epistle was written to Jewish members of the church to persuade them that significant aspects of the law of Moses as a forerunner had been fulfilled in Christ and that the higher gospel law of Christ had replaced it. Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews to show them by their own scriptures and by sound reason why they should no longer practice the law of Moses. Now, I know we've talked about this in previous epistles because this is a major theme coming out of the New Testament, but this is where it comes to kind of to culmination. The idea that members of the church, Jewish members of the church, can't let go of the law of Moses. They can't fully embrace all that Christ offered because they're so tied to the law of Moses is a major theme, not just of their day, but of our day. Because the invitation of every temple is to let go of old things, let go of telestial and terrestrial things and move into the celestial kingdom. Let go of the old and come into the Father's presence, come into the holy place, come into the celestial room. But some of us are still holding on to lesser things. We're holding on to telestial things that are keeping us out of the temple itself. And then we hold on to terrestrial things that are keeping us out of the Father's presence. And so this is a very applicable idea that's taught throughout the New Testament, but really emphasized here in the letter to the, the Hebrews. Let go of the old and embrace the new. So we're going to see three major themes develop in Hebrews. Theme number one is that the new covenant is better. Paul or whoever the author is, is going to say that. Let me just walk you through the 13 chapters and point out a few of them. 
in chapter 1, verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better than the angels, and he has a more excellent name. In chapter 3, we begin that he is an apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. For this man, in verse 3, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Do you see what he's trying to say? Why are you holding on to the law of Moses when Jesus was counted of more glory than Moses? Insomuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor. So more glory, more honor. Jumping to the pivotal chapter 7, speaking of Melchizedek priesthood versus Aaronic priesthood, or Melchizedek versus Levi, he says that Levi in verse 7, the less is blessed of the better. So clearly Melchizedek and the Melchizedek priesthood and the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood are better than the ordinances offered by the Aaronic priesthood. In verse 19, the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. No one had a great hope in the law of Moses, but Jesus has brought a better hope. Continuing into chapter 8, verse 6, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Why are you holding on to the lesser when Jesus has brought a better covenant, which was established upon better promises? So a more excellent ministry with a better covenant and better promises. Jumping to chapter 9, verse 23, the law of Moses was full of sacrifices. But the law of Christ is full of better sacrifices. Verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It's better. And then jumping to chapter 10, verse end of verse 34. And for ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and more enduring substance. In other words, the vision that Christ gives us, the hope for the future, the message of the modern gospel that Jesus delivered in his day gives us a greater and a better hope of the blessings in heaven. In chapter 11, verse 16, but now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Also in chapter 11, verse 35, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And then in verse 40, God having provided some better thing for us, let go of the old. Now that leads to theme number two. Because the covenant of Christ is better than the law of Moses, we need to be better. There's so many of the therefore let us and then a list of things we ought to do. 
So let me show you a handful of those, starting in the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to, that's another way of saying let us, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Jumping to chapter 4, verse 1 again, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Verse 14, let us hold fast to our profession. Verse 16, let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 9 of chapter 6 is kind of a, come on, guys, we are persuaded better things of you. In other words, we should be, we should be living better. I expected more from you because you have a better covenant. You need to live a higher law. Let's go to chapter 10. Verse 22, let us draw near to a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because we have better covenants, let's wash them and be better. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. It's always that we need to be better because we have a better covenant. Now, chapter 12, a wonderful chapter that we'll get to next week. Verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The end of chapter 12, verse 28, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And two more in chapter 13, verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. And verse 15, by him therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Now, the third theme, which in my opinion makes the epistle to the Hebrews such a wonderful study, is why is it better? And it's a study of what Jesus accomplished. This epistle is trying to show you the excellence of what Jesus did. What did he do that makes the gospel that he presented to us so much better. So we get some wonderful little insights into Christ. Just I know we're going to talk a lot about these, so let me just give you a couple of them. In chapter 4, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That's what he did. And that's why his gospel is so much better, is he knows, he understands. Jesus understands the human condition so much better than Moses did or that anyone did. So why hold to the law of Moses 
when we have so much better high priest who was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Just one more related to that. Chapter 5, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Hebrews is an invitation to come to really know what Jesus accomplished. As you go through the chapters, there's only 13 of them. Watch for the, we have a better system. Then watch for the, therefore let us. And then number three, not that it's third in our list, but maybe it's the most important. Watch for the, why is the gospel of Jesus? Why are the covenants that the Savior has given us so much better? What did he accomplish? And probably the only thing I would add as far as theme, and I say this all the time, Bryce, don't I? <laughs> this is the temple. This whole thing is this invitation to be invited to come into God's presence. Note what the author says in Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Now, the mercy seat or the lid of the ark, which was in the Holy of Holies, was considered the throne of God. And so when the author writes in 4.16, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace, it's an invitation to come into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And that's kind of the theme of the entire fourth chapter. So that invitation to come to the throne of grace is to come into God's presence. And that really is the theme of the whole chapter. I mean, look what it says in verse one, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. I mean, my translation of this is basically, hey, we need to have a healthy fear, a healthy respect of our own mortal condition and our tendency to do what Bryce talked about, hold on to celestial things. We need to have a healthy fear of that so that we don't fall short of entering into his rest. And the theme of entering into the rest of God is throughout Hebrews 4, which rest is entering into the fullness of his glory. That's Doctrine and Covenants section 84, verse 20. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. Now, if there's anybody who has authority, it's Jesus. The power of godliness was manifest to all those who saw Jesus for who he was. Verse 22, for without this, no man can see the face of God, even the father and live. Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God, but they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore, the Lord in his wrath for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. Therefore, he took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also, and the lesser priesthood continued, which priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels and the preparatory gospel. That, to me, is the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. The Melchizedek priesthood seems to me to uh, have been indicated that it's removed from their presence from the time of Moses. Now, Joseph Smith is going to say that prophets held it. 
and other prophets have talked about that the Nephites held the Melchizedek priesthood. You see, the Melchizedek priesthood was what could authorize the saints to come into God's presence. And my contention is the early Israelites had this from time to time. The Book of Mormon authors clearly are talking about this over and over again. Nephi and the brother of Jared and Alma and other prophets are talking about this idea that God wants to bring us into his presence, that we can be encircled about by the arms of safety. That image of being enwrapped in the arms of safety is to come into God's presence. And so I see the whole book of Hebrews as that invitation. And the author is reminding these Jews, hey, that's the whole purpose. And it's Jesus who can make this happen. And I think the author understands both traditions. The first Israelite temple and the second temple period, and he's really trying to bring them to that space so that they can see he's bringing us back to the Father. So why are you holding on to lesser things? Let go of them. We have a better system today, which expects more of us than the old system did. And the reason it's better is because we have a high priest who has done better things. He is a high priest of good things to come. Therefore, let go of the lesser and come into his presence. You see those themes, not just associated with the the epistle to the Hebrews, but they are our modern-day temple invitations as well. Let's kind of tackle these six chapters one at a time and looking for those very things. So the theme of chapter one is Jesus was made better than the angels, all the way back in pre-mortal life. And I think there's a lot of ways to tackle chapter one as you read it. One way is to say, when we were given premortal assignments, some angels were given very significant assignments to come and restore. Now think about their Jewish traditions, and they were waiting for Elijah, right? Every Passover, there was a seat waiting for Elijah, kind of coming as an angel, and so they reverenced these angels. They, they reverenced the messengers of the covenant who had come and would come. Angels were a significant thing. But what the author's trying to say is Jesus was made greater than all the angels. So of all the premortal assignments, of all the messengers from heaven that have come, no one came with a greater mission to perform, nor with the greater hope of all of us, than Jesus came. Coming out of pre-mortal life, think about all that Christ had already done. I love the reference in verse 2, that by whom also he made the worlds. So he, he came into the world already having accomplished more than anyone else who ever came to earth. He came as creator, creator of worlds without number. That's such a good verse, verse two. I just, I love this. I'm going to nerd out really quick. The Greek is diu kai tus ionas epoisen. My translation, by whom also he made the eternities or the eons. It's translated as worlds, but Ionus could be like the eons of time. It's just a really cool image. It's just, it's kind of bigger than worlds. And notice in verse three that he's in the express image of his person, meaning that Jesus is in the express image of his father. I think that's so significant. Kind of our third theme is, do you understand that he is in the express image of his father? 
And that is a significant thing. It was back in the this Last Supper where Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus must have just shaken his head and said, have I been so long with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? And then this beautiful declaration, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Sometimes we portray Jesus as kinder than God, the eternal Father. I know Jesus, and I know how kind he is. I get to read about his mercy and his grace, but I'm afraid of the eternal Father. And the Savior's just shaking his head saying, don't you understand? If we know Jesus, then we know the Father. And it is my duty to take everything I know about the Son, every truth, every insight I've ever gained about Jesus, and apply it to Heavenly Father. He is as kind, as merciful as I have come to discover that Christ is. Now, Moses was not that. I love Moses, but Moses didn't have all those attributes of the Father. No prophet has, but Jesus was the express image of the Father. Therefore, come know the Father by studying the Son. That simple verse is so significant. The first presidency even talked about this, where they said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the express image of his Father's person. He walked the earth as a human being, as a perfect man, and said, in answer to a question put to him, he that's seen me has seen the Father, John fourteen nine. This alone ought to solve the problem to the satisfaction of every thoughtful, reverent mind. The conclusion is irresistible, that if the Son of God be the expressed image, that is likeness, of his Father's person, then his Father is in the form of man. For that was the form of the Son of God, not only during his mortal life, but also before his mortal birth and after his resurrection. And then they go on. Note in Hebrews 1 verse 5, we read the following, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he said, And let all the angels of God worship him. There's quite a bit going on here in these verses. First, note that the quote, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee, that was a statement that was given to the kings during the first temple period. If you go to Psalm 2, look what it says. Verse 6, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's the temple. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. The kings of the early period were considered the sons of God. By becoming a king, they became a son. When we make covenants with God... We become sons and daughters of Christ. We read this in Mosiah when King Benjamin gives his speech. And this was part of the anointing experience of the early kings here. Now go to Psalm 110. Look what it says there. Verse 1 of Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand 
until I make thine enemies thy footstool. There's a lot of ways to read this, but one of the ways we can read this is that the Father said to the Son, meaning the Son of God, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Joseph Smith talked about the last enemy being death. The Savior will conquer death, and he will stand symbolically on death and crush it with his feet. Now that image was also used as a symbol for the God of Israel saying to the king, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And in that context, the enemy would be the political enemies of Israel, that God, if the king was righteous, would defend Israel through the embodiment of the king. As the king went, so went Israel. If the king was righteous, Israel would be blessed and so forth. And then in verse four of Psalm 110, we read, the Lord has sworn, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then the Lord gives promises of invulnerability in verses five, six, and seven. Those are some uh, pretty intense verses, but just know that Psalm 110 verses five, six, and seven, those are verses that describe God's promises of invulnerability to the king, that he will be able to defend his people, that he will have strength and power to do the work of God. And these promises in Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 are being channeled by the author of Hebrews. Because if we go back to Hebrews, look what we read about Jesus. We've already read, thou art a son, and I've begotten thee this day. If you go to verse 13 of Hebrews 1, we read this. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? The way I read this is that Jesus is to sit on the right hand of God, and this is not a statement that God is giving to the angels. This is a statement that God is giving to Jesus, and that Jesus is going to make the enemies of God and the righteous, that he's going to make them his footstool. And once again, I like Joseph Smith, where he says, the last enemy is death. Jesus is going to conquer death, and his foot symbolically is going to crush death. And because of this, Jesus is the ultimate example of Melchizedek, the righteous king, the ultimate example of God's son. Remember, that's a title for the kings. So Jesus is the king of, of all. I, I think that is a good way to read Hebrews 1, reading it through the lens of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and through that first temple experience. Now, before we go on, I'm just going to make this plug. There's a lot of scholars that talk about uh, the first temple experience that was experienced in Israel from about 1000 BC to 586. Uh, there's a couple really good Latter-day Saint scholars, LeGrand Baker and Stephen Ricks, and they got together and wrote a book called Who Shall Send to the Hill of the Lord? And that book is excellent. And we will reference that in the show notes. We'll also reference a link where you can get a free copy on PDF that you can read for free. Uh, that's because the authors really wanted to make it available to everyone. I highly recommend it. It's excellent. The really good stuff, in my opinion, is in the footnotes. There's so much here uh, to this. And it's and by the way, I, I get it. If you're hearing this for the first time, you might be going, okay, what's going on? Uh, this is hard to understand. Uh, the author of Hebrews even says that. I mean, if you go to 5.11, he says, you guys are um, dull of hearing. You don't understand. And then he kind of talks about milk and meat. And he says, basically, you're not ready for, for meat. Uh, we got to give you milk. 
But I, I, I guess my point is, as Latter-day Saints and as those that have been to the temple, like if there's anybody on the planet that should get this stuff, it should be us. And I think it's worth our time to spend some time and try to understand that uh, the endowment, I'm going to call it the endowment, call it what you will, first Israelite temple religion was understood by the earliest authors, and it was lost. And the Bible that we have, as good as it is, has been edited. And the Old Testament was edited by those who had lost the truth to kind of reflect their understanding. And my opinion is the best way to read the Bible is through the lens of the Book of Mormon, because the Book of Mormon authors understood that Jesus was that God, that God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, and that Jesus wanted everybody to come into his presence. And liturgically, that was done at the temple. It's not a coincidence that Lehi left Jerusalem just before that temple was destroyed, carrying that first temple tradition with him and writing it into the Book of Mormon. It's not a coincidence that the authors of the Book of Mormon were familiar with that ordinance and how it played out and wrote it into the theology of the Book of Mormon, which has now been brought forward in our day in the Book of Mormon. So notice chapter 1 is Jesus' premortal life, the great Jehovah of the premortal life and who he was there. Now, chapter 2, we watch Jehovah come into the world. And this is an astounding concept if you ponder it, that God sent his son who was like unto him in premortal life, who had achieved status like unto the Father and yet went through a veil and forgot everything to endure a mortal existence to show us the way. So the author to the Hebrews now is going to talk about what that taught him, a God in mortal form suffering mortality. I mean, he came to us. The last two verses of chapter 2 are just golden if you sit and ponder why Jesus is better why his way is better. It's because wherefore, this is verse 17 of chapter 2, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. It is astounding when you think about what Christ went through. Why would you let go of that and hold on to Moses? No disrespect for Moses, but he was in no way that being who knew every aspect of the mortal condition and gave us a law to help us overcome it. We've got to read Alma chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, one of the great contributions of the Book of Mormon and to our modern-day understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. Alma taught the saints at Gideon, and he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, of every kind. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. 
and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. He knows how to succor and help. He knows how to judge. He knows the human condition. Therefore, wouldn't any law that he gave us be tailored to the human condition? Doesn't his understanding make his way better than anyone else's way? He knows what we're going through. Therefore, the law that he has given us is better in every way. Going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 2. So from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. He knows how to get through mortality. Why not listen to him? Why not seek his opinion out? Why not seek his comfort when we struggle? He knows the human condition, and that's why his way is the better way. By the way, Bryce, while you're talking about that, I love verse 10, and uh, the author is going to call him the Archegon, and that word is translated as captain. An Archegon is a pioneer or someone, at least in Greek literature, who would go on this descent. So he's the person that's cutting the path. He goes on this descent and does these hard things, and he's kind of like our type or our leader. I love the word captain, but it it really holds so much more. Jesus did it first, but he didn't just do it to do it. He did it because he wants us to do it. It's participatory. So look what it says. Verse 10, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. Look at that. It's not just about Jesus. It's about him saving us to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It's through his suffering that he did that descent, and he blazed the trail. I think that's another good word for captain. That archegon, he is literally the one who went on the descent to make it so we could come home. It's just a really cool image. Notice verse 8. He's putting all things in subjection under his feet. Well, remember, the greatest enemy is death. And that's nothing to Jesus. And think about, you you take away death and sin from this world, this is a pretty awesome world, but death makes this a hard place, and Jesus has got that covered. Like, it's he's walking on it. It's under his feet. Now, in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, kind of picking up this whole theme, Hebrews 2, section 93, a lot in common. We have an excerpt from the book of John the Baptist, in which, verse 12, 13, and 14, it reminds us that the great Jehovah of the premortal life came through the veil and didn't remember. He received not a fullness at the first. He came through a veil and went through a process called grace for grace. Jesus forgot everything, started over, and walked through this mortal life going through the process called grace for grace. And then in verse 19 of section 93, it says, I give unto you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship. 
and that you may come unto the Father in my name, and in due time receive of the fullness. For if you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness, and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. Jesus, Jehovah of premortal life, came through the veil and showed us how to get back to the Father. All we have to do is follow him and do what he did, grace for grace, grace to grace, until we get back to the Father's presence. That's the brilliance of what the gospel has done. So why in the world would you let go of Jesus and rush back to Moses? And by the same token, why in the world would you stay in a terrestrial room holding on to terrestrial things and not come into the Father's presence through the atoning sacrifice of Christ? That's the great question that this book is asking. That's good. Notice verse 14 of chapter 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same. And then look at the end of chapter 2. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Joseph Smith expressed this sentiment when he said that Jesus was exposed to more powerful contradictions than any man can be. And so because of this, we can trust him. And I think that really does lead us into the third chapter, where in my opinion, this chapter, but really the whole book, is written to a group of Jews that are wondering, okay, is this really the right play? Is it really right for us to follow Jesus? Look what it says in the beginning of chapter three. Wherefore, brethren, partaking of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that was appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has builded the house has more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Robert J. Matthews said this. He said, the epistle to the Hebrews was probably written to Jewish Christians who were struggling with the issue of the law of Moses and its fulfillment in the gospel of Christ. This epistle is an extended essay on the superiority of Christ and the gospel to Moses and the institutions of the Mosaic law. The author will emphasize the superiority of Christ to the angels, that's in the first couple chapters, and then to Moses, that's the third chapter, his superiority as a high priest to the Jewish high priest, that's Hebrews 4 and 5, and the superiority of his Melchizedek priesthood to the priesthood of Aaron, that's in the seventh chapter, and then finally, the Savior's superiority of his sacrifice and the covenant to those of the Mosaic law, that's Hebrews 8 and 9. And I think that is the main argument here in the third chapter, that as good as Moses is, we need to remember Christ is the fulfillment of everything Moses taught. And the early Christians are rereading their Bible. They see that Moses is a type of Christ, that Moses and his law points our hearts to Jesus. Now that we get into four, noticing that Jesus is greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses. 
He's a greater high priest. Chapter 4 is really about the therefores. So I think I think Paul or the author is pausing at this point saying, okay, guys, let's step it up. So he says in verse 1, we've got to keep going. We've got to come into that rest. Let us, therefore, fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Keep going, guys. Knowing that Jesus came into this mortal experience says we can make it. We've got to follow him. Verse 11 is that, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Hold on. Keep going. We can do this. Verse 14, let us hold fast our profession. The reason we can make it, the reason we can do this, guys, is because we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Well, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I'm, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I'm nowhere near what he was. And the idea is, I know, no one is, but he knows what it's like for us. So he's made it possible for the least and the lowest of us to come unto him. He knows the mortal experience. He knows temptations. He knows why we fall, but he didn't fall so that he can carry us to the end. Now, because of Jesus, we can boldly come unto the throne of grace, not because I deserve it. My confidence is not in me. My confidence is in him. Next week, we'll get into chapter 10 which reveals a marvelous symbol for all of us in this whole process, that Jesus is the veil. So I want you to picture, those of you who've been to sacred places, coming unto the Father. Now, I can come boldly to the Father because the Father sees me through the veil. The Father sees me through Christ. He doesn't see me. He sees me through Jesus. And let's all be honest. Seeing me through the atonement of Christ is a very different view of me than I see when I look at me. The Father sees me through the glory of the atoning sacrifice. Notice verse 12. He sees you even piercing, even the dividing ascender of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. He is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of my heart. That's why I can be bold before God. That's why I can stand there with confidence, because I didn't do it. Jesus did it. I am there because of Christ. So because I have a high priest which understands the human condition, I can stand boldly before the Father. I can have confidence. It's through Him that I am bold. And I want you to just picture that coming into the Father's presence and being seen through Christ, which is the veil, so that I can find grace and help in time of need. And I think, Bryce, this is so important we understand this, that Hebrews 4 doesn't say veil. It doesn't say holy of holies, but it does. 
I mean, at the very end in verse 16, where we're coming to the throne of grace, that was in the Holy of Holies. And so I just believe this. We have to read Hebrews 4 through the lens of section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that the rest is entering into the fullness of his glory. And I believe the author is totally writing about this and totally explaining this, but it's there, but it's kind of in code. Well, and I believe the author is very familiar with temple experiences, and all temple experiences kind of have that same theme of coming out of a, a lesser into a higher, letting go of the old, embracing the new, and coming through a veil into the Father's presence. It's just kind of assumed that you would know what I'm talking about when he says, you can come boldly to the throne of grace. And if you've caught the vision of who Jesus is and what he's done, your confidence comes because of him, not because of you, but because of him. Before we go to chapter 5, I just want to look at verse 14 briefly, the very last part there where he says, let us hold fast our profession. You know, Bryce, for years I thought, what does my profession have to do with anything? But that's not what he's talking about. Uh, That word that's translated as profession just means the things that we have confessed about Jesus. And so a good translation of, of that part could be, let us hold tight to the things that we confess about Jesus. Or another way we could translate it is, let us stay true to our testimonies of Jesus. And I think if we read it that way, at least for me, the end of verse 14 makes a lot more sense. As I'm on this journey towards entering into the glory of God and being with him, a big part of that is me holding true to my testimony. And what does that remind me of in the whole vision that Nephi has in Lehi? That's the iron rod. I'm holding fast to the iron rod, which is the word of God. And if I do that, He's going to take me home. I will be a just man made perfect through the atoning blood of Christ, and my garments will be washed white, and I will enter into the presence of the Lamb. Why? Not because I'm great, but because He is. What's fascinating is in the book of Revelation, John is trying to give us encouragement that we can kick Satan out of this world because we've done it before. We kicked Satan out of premortal life. And then he says in, in chapter 12, we did it by our testimonies of Christ. We kicked Satan out of premortal life through holding fast to our testimony. And so the idea here is Paul saying we can do it again by holding fast to our testimony of Christ. That's our profession not our occupation, it's what we profess about Christ. I think that's the important thing. Okay, Hebrews 5, lots of stuff in here. Um, Verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. So the author in verse 2 and 3 is emphasizing this idea that the high priests that they're used to are people, and they also are mortal, and they also have to make an offering for themselves. Why? Because they're fallen. And in verse 4 he says, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Now I think that the people that heard that read, in synagogue, they knew 
that there was this whole other story happening. And so I want to just reference a possibility as to what they may have understood verse 4 to mean. You see, during the Second Temple period, there is a massive mix of politics and religious leadership when it comes to the high priests. Uh, (laughs) The powers that ruled Palestine during the Second Temple period had a lot of political maneuvering going on. And the powers that ruled Judea would sometimes appoint individuals to the position of high priest as a political favor. And probably one of the most famous ones was the installment of Menelaus as high priest in the second century BC. Uh, Menelaus was a member of the Hellenistic community, and he secured the position as high priest through bribery and political maneuvering. And when he was finally appointed, there were a lot of Jews who were really upset because they didn't want this Hellenistic influenced individual who they viewed as corrupt being the high priest. And there was this massive controversy when he was appointed and there were a lot of Jews that rejected him. The office of high priest, at least according to what we have in the Bible, was first conferred upon Aaron by his brother Moses. And this was considered something that you would normally inherit for life. In the second century BC, however, there was some bribery going on with who could be the high priest, and there was some tension between a couple of guys. One was Jason, and one was Menelaus. And these two individuals used money and influence to kind of bribe the powers that be to make sure that they could be the high priest. And so essentially, Menelaus is able to do this uh, right before the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, He was installed as a high priest uh, right around 170 B.C., And this caused a lot of tension, a lot of political tension in uh, Palestine during this time period. And there were a lot of Jews who were uh, of the opinion that uh, Menelaus was too Hellenistic, and they were really upset. And so according to some historians, it was Menelaus who persuaded some of the powers that be to Hellenize Jewish worship. And that, that influence of bringing Hellenistic tendencies into their religious experience, according to some historians, brought about the Maccabean Revolt right around 165 BC, which was a great conflict in the second century before Jesus. And Jews had this collective memory. They knew that there were individuals in their history who used money to purchase the office of high priest. And I believe that the author of Hebrews chapter five, when he says, no man taketh this honor unto himself, kind of has his tongue in cheek and is going, wink, wink, but we know that they do. In other words, the first four verses are kind of setting up the argument. Hey, you mortals that are doing this high priest stuff, we all know you guys are corrupt at worst, but at best you're mortal. And so what the author is going to do is to push their minds forward or push their eyes upward to see Jesus who he is. Jesus didn't have to use money to purchase his position. He had authority because he was who he was, that Jesus is the son of God. Notice what he says, for Christ glorified not himself, that's Hebrews 5, 5, to be made a high priest. Jesus didn't need to pay for it. He was it. But he said unto him, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Who is he that is saying this? That is the father. The father is saying in verse five to Jesus, you are my son. And he said in another place, thou art a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. Now, pause. If you think about Melchizedek, what do we have in the Bible? Just a couple bits, right? We got that little bit when Abraham comes back from the slaughter of the kings and he pays tithes to Melchizedek. If you took out all that we know in the Restoration, like Joseph Smith Translation Editions and the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 13, we would know very, very little about Melchizedek. So what does that tell us about the author? He's trying to build on someone significant enough to have been taken out of our scriptures, to restore the memory of the great high priest, the model. Think about why would you name the priesthood after someone? We know that the proper name of the priesthood is not the Melchizedek priesthood, but it was given that name because he's the model. He's the model of how to hold it. And so that's a commentary for another day, that Melchizedek is a model of how to hold the Melchizedek priesthood. But what the author is doing here is saying, Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. He is the model for Melchizedek to follow. He is the great high priest. So if Melchizedek was worthy of all this commentary and all these things that we say about him, because he was a great example of how to be a priest, how to be a high priest— then Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than all the high priests. All those high priests that may or may not have been worthy of the office, he was worthy of that office. Notice what Hebrews 5, 8 through 10 speak about. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So once again, obedience is part of the gospel, right? That's important. And then verse 10, called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Christ was made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek sometime prior to the creation of this world. Remember, he was a God prior to the creation. Note that the author of Hebrews is pointing us to what we are to be doing, how we are to obtain. Note the invitation, quote, to all they that obey him, Hebrews 5, 9, or, quote, ye ought to be teachers, that's Hebrews 5, 12, or Hebrews 6, 1 reads, let us go on to perfection. The purpose of this discourse, in my opinion, is an invitation for us to see Christ, who he is, what he has done, and for us to follow him. And so when Jesus is called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, in my opinion, this is an invitation for us to do the same. LeGrand Baker and Stephen Ricks, writing of this order of Melchizedek and how this played out in the early Israelite temple drama, wrote the following. It was of the utmost importance that the drama show that the king, and through him, his subjects, received all the empowering ordinances that would enable him to fulfill his premortal covenants. Therefore, we find in Psalm 110 that he was ordained to the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. That was necessary because legitimate kingship is a subset of legitimate priesthood. One cannot be a king unless he is first a priest. That is, he can have priesthood without kingship, but he cannot have kingship without priesthood. 
the king's ordination enabled him to perform all the rites, covenants, and sacrifices of Solomon's temple services. In our ancient scriptures, there are only three places where we find reference to this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. The first is Psalm 110, where the Lord confers that priesthood upon Israel's king. The second is the book of Hebrews, where Paul twice quotes Psalm 110 in reference to the Savior's priesthood. That's in Hebrews 5.6 and Hebrews 7.17. And then he refers to it again several other times. The third reference is Alma 13, where Alma teaches Zeezrom about priesthood legitimacy. In the first verse of Psalm 110, the words, Sit thou at my right hand, was literally an invitation to the king to sit next to God, implicitly to sit upon the throne of God. The invitation was proffered here in conjunction with the ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood, but would not be realized until near the conclusion of the drama when the king would be crowned. Now think about this. Every one of us is invited to become kings and queens unto God, but the realization of that blessing will come later when we come into God's rest. I'm convinced that the editors of the Hebrew Bible managed to scrub much of the evidence of Israel's kings uh, being both kings and priests. I, I, I just believe this, that much of this evidence has been scrubbed out. This was a manner or type of the real king, Jehovah, the pre-earth Jesus, who will one day take his throne upon the earth as king of kings. Jesus is both a king and a priest. And one of the purposes of the epistle of Hebrews, in my opinion, is to invite us as saints for us to collectively and individually follow Jesus on this path of becoming kings and priests, queens and priestesses after the order of Melchizedek. We are being invited to sit on the right hand of God, having been called to this holy calling on account of our faith, so that we might enter into his rest, so that we might be sanctified and that our garments may be washed through the blood of the Lamb, so that we might become pure and spotless before God and bring forth fruit and enter into that rest, which rest is a fullness of his glory. I believe this is an invitation. And so with that, We go to chapter 6, where we read that we are invited to go on unto perfection in verse 1. And there's a huge warning here. And the the fact that the Book of Mormon makes this warning repeatedly ought to cause the Latter-day Saints to really listen. There is a danger of leaving Christ and going back. Once you know enlightenment— once you know goodness, once you've been embraced by the light, if you leave it— you enter darkness. You cannot go back to neutral ground. Let's take a look at it in Hebrews, and then we're going to find it in modern-day Revelation. First in verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. In other words, Paul is saying it is impossible to lose that much light and eventually be capable of repentance. Now, that's an extreme case. 
But again, the fact that that comes up so often is worthy of pausing and saying, if you do let go of Christ and go back, you are not going back to neutral ground. I really love how Joseph Smith explained this to Isaac Behunin one time when they were having a conversation about the apostates turning against Joseph. Isaac Behunin turned to Joseph and said the following, If I should leave this church, I would not do as those men have done. I would go to some remote place where Mormonism had never been heard of, settle down, and no one would ever learn that I knew anything about it. In other words, Isaac Buchanan said, if I embrace the light and then leave it, I would go back to neutral ground, as if I had never embraced it. I'd just go back to where I came from. Now that, like Paul says, is not possible. You cannot go back to neutral ground. Joseph Smith will say to him, Brother Behunin, you do not know what you would do. No doubt these men once thought as you do. Before you joined this church, you stood on neutral ground. When the gospel was preached, good and evil were set before you. You could choose either or neither. There were two opposite masters inviting you to serve them. When you joined this church, you enlisted to serve God. When you did that, you left neutral ground, and you can never get back onto it. Should you forsake the master you enlisted to serve, it will be by the instigation of the evil one, and you will follow his dictation and be his servant." You cannot go back to neutral ground. You will be in darkness. Now, how does the Book of Mormon teach that? Remember how much it emphasizes the Amalekites among the Lamanites? They were the hardest of all the Lamanites, and they were former Nephites. In talking about that odd phenomenon, Mormon includes this in Alma chapter 24, the very last verse. It's the same idea here. And thus we can plainly discern that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness and then have fallen away into sin and transgression, they become more hardened and thus their state becomes worse than though they had never known these things. You cannot go back to neutral ground. So amid all of the reasons to not go back and to, to move forward because Christ is better is a warning. And if you go far enough, you will be like those, end of verse 6 of chapter 6 again, who crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. That is almost a direct quotation from Doctrine and Covenants section 76, speaking of the sons of perdition. It says in verse 35, having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it, and having denied the only begotten Son of the Father, having crucified him unto themselves, and put him to an open shame. So just be aware if you leave Jesus, you are not going back to neutral ground. You are going down into a darkness. And apparently some of them were on that path. Maybe the beginning stages, but they were on that path. 
So Paul, or the author to the Hebrews, says in chapter 6, verse 9, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. In other words, we expected more from you. So let's step it up. Let's not walk away from this great high priest who understands us so well. After the warning, there is a bit of encouragement given to the faithful, and that is really Hebrews 6, 9 through 20. For example, Hebrews 6, 10 reads, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work. Or Hebrews 6, 12 reads, Be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then we get this in verse 18. And I've often questioned this, uh, trying to understand its meaning. Look what verse 18 says, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. You see, those two immutable things as an anchor or hope for the believers could be a couple things. There's a, there's a few interpretations. One could be God's promise and oath. For example, in the preceding verses, the author emphasizes God's promise to bless and multiply Abraham's descendants and the confirmation of that promise through his oath. So these could be the two elements there. Another option could be Jesus's divine nature and his role as our mediator. What if those are the two immutable things? Or perhaps it could be God's promises to Abraham and the one priest likened to Melchizedek. One scholar wrote this, Although God swore more than these two promises, the writer emphasizes here the two he has just mentioned, the one to Abraham and the one to the priest like Melchizedek. Now, perhaps that's it. Perhaps it's the promise to Abraham and to the priest like Melchizedek. Well, that's you. That's me. That's also Jesus. The author doesn't really tell us what the two immutable things are. And so I leave it open. But I look here and I read some of these code phrases or these clues or keywords. I mean, look in verse four. The author is talking about tasting the heavenly gift. Look in verse 9, we are persuaded better things of you. Now I'm going to flip verse 8, but in verse 8 it talks about the thorns and briars. Uh, that's the acantha and tribolone that are left in Genesis 3. Remember, back in Genesis 3, 18, the thorns and thistles of the fallen world are outside of the garden. And so as we leave the thorns and thistles, we come into God's presence or his rest. And so these could be code images to bring us to verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Talking about this idea of the anchor to the soul, in a talk that Mary and G. Romney gave, talking about having our calling and election made sure, he said this, quoting Joseph Smith, Notwithstanding, the apostle exhorts them to add to their faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, etc., Yet he exhorts them to make their calling and election sure. And though they had heard an audible voice from heaven bearing testimony that Jesus was the Son of God, yet he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. 
Now, wherein could they have a more sure word of prophecy than to hear the voice of God saying, This is my beloved son? Answering his own question, the prophet continued, quote, Though they might hear the voice of God and know that Jesus was the Son of God, this would be no evidence that their election and calling was made sure, that they had part with Christ, that they were joint heirs with him. They would then want that more sure word of prophecy that they were sealed in the heavens. And then Mary and G. Romney continues saying that basically this, having been sealed unto them, was an anchor to their soul, sure and steadfast. So at least in the mind of Marion G. Romney, as he's quoting Joseph Smith, it seems to me that the end of Hebrews 6 is an invitation for us to come into God's presence and receive an anchor to our soul that God has a place for us in his heavenly kingdom. And so as I kind of read some of these code words in the sixth chapter, as we get closer to God's presence, the warning of Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 is more relevant because uh, there's more on the line. Remember, uh, there's opposition in all things, or with greater light comes uh, greater challenges, or as one person said, with great power comes great responsibility. So Hebrews 6 is really playing with those images. Now, Bryce and I promised we would talk about Hebrews 7. So we're going to end with Hebrews 7, but know that that's really next week's Come Follow Me. We'll pick it back up next week, but do you see how all of these ideas kind of come to a culmination in chapter 7 where we talk about Melchizedek versus Levi? the Melchizedek priesthood versus the Levitical priesthood, Jesus versus the old way. So it just kind of flows into that, that that Jesus is greater than all of the high priests, and then he flows into chapter 7 saying, even Melchizedek. Jesus is greater than even Melchizedek, who was greater than Levi. He's going to point out in verse 10, And it's almost funny that Levi was yet in the loins of his father Abraham when Abraham honored and paid tithes to Melchizedek. So Abraham is kind of yielding to Melchizedek, and Levi was in his loins, hadn't even been born yet. So how can the Levitical priesthood be this superior thing and the ordinances of the Levitical priesthood be the crowning glory? Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham honored and acknowledged the greatness of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a symbol of Jesus. And so if Melchizedek is greater than the Aaronic, then Jesus is greater than everything else. So don't let go of Jesus. Don't go back to the lesser when clearly Jesus is the greater. He is the great high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood. So note Hebrews 7, verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Now time out. I believe the Jews in Moses' day held the priesthood. I believe the Bible's been edited, but I also understand the author is acknowledging the text that they have, and that's how he's reading it. Verse 15, And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life, meaning Jesus. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The way I see it, verse 17 He's talking about Jesus. But once again, 
It is also an invitation to us to remember who we are, where we're going, and that Jesus is the prototypical archegos or the pioneer, the, the one that's blazing the trail. And he is bringing us, verse 22, to a better place, to a better testament. That's my testimony, and that's who Jesus is, and I believe that the author understands this. So we're going to pause here. We'll pick it up in chapter 7 next week, but don't lose steam between one half of Hebrews and the other half of Hebrews. The idea here is as relevant to Latter-day Saints as it was to the Jewish members of the church back then. Don't go back to something lesser. Yes, does the gospel require sacrifice and change? Yes. Did even Jesus learn obedience by the things that he suffered? Yes. And our mortal life is designed to be a challenge and a test. But Jesus is so much better, and the reward he offers is so much greater. Hold on to him. With all of our souls, Mike and I testify that Jesus offers a better hope a better way, a better covenant, and as challenging as it may be to follow him, as difficult. You remember that moment where they said, this is an hard saying, who can hear it? And they walked away from him. As challenging as it is to pick up our cross and follow him, there is no other way. There is no better way. He is the way. May we never forget that and hold on to Jesus with all that we have. So with that, we thank you for listening. Next week's Come Follow Me is Hebrews 7 through 13. Now, before we go, I just want to remind you that we've been working on some new video content on our YouTube channel that you might enjoy. Just know that Bryce and I will continue to release our regular podcast every week. So these new videos are in addition to our podcasts and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. So we hope that you'll check them out on our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. We'll leave a link in the description. And with that, make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.